humans have kind of an overriding superstition or even what we might refer to as a pathology about water, and that is that water has to be something simple. It's something that's part of all of our consciousness. We all have this pathological need to believe water is simple. And because of this, we have a flawed understanding of water, and it goes way beyond any reason. You can explain to people how the current model fails. You can show them that there's complexities going on that don't make sense. Blatant evidence that there's something wrong with the model, but it doesn't matter to people. They just keep believing that it must be simple. And therefore, they stick with the current model, which is wrong and, and can even blatantly be shown to be wrong by way of upwards of 72 anomalous observations. These are the anomalies of water, the anomalies of H2O. But in people's mind, they're just an explanation of an observation that doesn't quite fit with the current theory and not an indication that the current theory is, is mistaken, is wrong. That's really what's going on. Some people say there's a controversy, some people won't. There's all these anomalies and there's all these observations that people say are explained and other people say they're not. It's not like there's even the slightest attempt to address the fact that, hey, you know what, our theory is wrong. Because it is, I think, just so spiritual for people. The mystery itself is something that they want to preserve. It takes away the potential of even greater things if you actually understand it. And they want to believe even greater things, and that's it's just a human thing. Now, all this wouldn't matter if we had scientists who, who realized this and who, who didn't let it affect uh, their theory, but unfortunately, exactly the other way around. We have scientists who want to follow through with this pathological belief that water is simple despite all the evidence to the contrary. So that's why every attempt I've made to straighten out the current paradigm and to show how I have the solution, and I do, I have the solution, which basically jumps right out at you once you understand what the problem is, and that's the thing, is people won't really address the problem. The problem is we don't understand the way the molecule actually interacts with other molecules. We don't understand the physics on that. And the reason we don't understand the physics is because we believe something that says that those physics couldn't possibly be what we're actually observing. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm being very serious here. We believe something about chemistry that says that all our observations couldn't possibly be what we're seeing. And so we need to stick with our beliefs and we therefore have to minimize the impact of these observations because they're inconsistent with what we want to believe. One of the things that this belief brings us is this notion that there can't be or shouldn't be any kind of a elastic bond, that all bonds have to be inelastic bonds that we do know do exist, explicated in a concept called Coulomb's Law, and that's where the mistake was made. What has happened in academia and or what kind of underlies the academic part of this human expression of pathological desire to misunderstand or to maintain the mystery of water. And that is this application of Coulomb's law in a way in which it really was never meant to be applied. What's really happening with hydrogen bonds and the way they are elastic is that they literally turn off the source of what Coulomb is concerned with. So Coulomb's law kind of assumes that there's a stable positive and a stable negative on the two atoms or molecules that are forming a bond. It assumes that these two qualities exist in some quantity and that quantity doesn't change through the, through the formation of the bond. That's what everyone is assuming. Now what's happening though with a hydrogen bond is 
as the molecules are coming together, forming into bonds, each one forming four bonds, one bond each with up to four other H2O molecules in their, in their vicinity, and they can actually collectivize very tightly. They can kind of surround each other. What happens, though, with H2O is that formation produces electromagnetic symmetry on each one of those nucleuses that are involved in that relationship. And that wouldn't be any big deal except for the fact that it being asymmetrical was what was causing the force that brought them together to form a bond. Think about that. Now, that's something I think if you're listening to this podcast, you might want to play that back and you might want to write down what I said there because only when you understand that do you really understand why H2O bonds are very distinctive and why H2O has these very distinctive high degree of elasticity. And that high degree of elasticity is what allows it to do all these other behaviors including such things as be involved in life, including such things as be involved in weather. It has all these other behaviors that also involve energy or flow in some way. You know, life involves energy and flow. But right now, we don't understand this elasticity in a literal uh, physical sense, or we're not allowed, we're not allowing ourselves to understand it because the taboo uh, associated with preserving the mystery maintaining this pathological belief in the simplicity of H2O. This belief is so central to who we are and to what we, how we view ourselves and in the context of ourselves and water, which you've got to realize is to some degree spiritual. That's what's happening. Our surreal and unscientific belief in the simplicity of water, our deep instinct to maintain that as a mystery is what's preventing us from making advances in some sciences. That's really what's happening. Now, I was able to find my way through all this stuff by just being extremely honest with myself, and I find that other people just can't do it because they are just too wrapped up in the pathology of the belief in the simplicity of water. And so what's happened is this need to keep people comfortable and not scare them with things that are too complicated or that are, that are against, that run against the grain of our instincts, is causing us to not advance in this particular branch of science. Now, one of the things that's stopping us from understanding is the nature of storms. Only if you understand that elasticity can you understand how storms happen, and only if you understand the nature by which storms happen can you understand how such entities as hurricanes happen, and only if you understand how hurricanes happen, might you be able to someday mitigate some of the effects of them along the lines of, let's say, steering it back out into the Gulf of Mexico rather than allowing it to continue over a city. But I think there's a chance that it can be done. Let me put it this way. If it's true, as I maintain now my understanding of how storms function, that the energy of a storm is delivered by way of tubes that travel along the top of the troposphere all the way down to the location of the storm. And that's true even if the storm's in the equator, by the way. So these things can travel very long distances. And if it's true that that is the mechanism by which the low pressure energy of storms is delivered, then it may be true that there might be some way to bisect some of these energy delivery systems. If we think of it as like plumbing, throw a rag in the plumbing or something like that and thereby in some way affect the delivery of the cause of the storm and that being the delivery of the low pressure which comes down these tubes and thereby halt the storm or possibly cause it to 
pull it back out into the, into the ocean or something along those lines. Now, as to whether this would actually work, it's a long shot. Let's put it that way. It, it might just be that the atmosphere is just so big and it has so many other options that we're just a, a pea in the ocean in comparison to what the atmosphere is capable of doing in terms of delivering energy to a location. And we wouldn't really affect it that much, even if we threw unlimited resources at it. On the other hand, it might be that these vortices, these delivery mechanisms over long distance, once you bisect them, you may destroy a whole bunch of other pathways over hundreds of miles, and you could have some significant effect. That may be the case. Of course, it's one of those things you're not going to know unless you actually go out and try it. And I have some ideas as to how it can be done for relatively inexpensively. But even that, though, we're talking about um, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the least. If you look at the atmosphere, trying to make sense of it, and you first you realize it's mostly gas. And you realize one of the problems with gases in terms of having an atmosphere that has some kind of functionality like we do see is that there's no leverage. And if there's no leverage, there's no way to, to effectuate any kind of a, a long-distance process of any kind. Without some degree of structure, the atmosphere is just friction. You can't maintain a flow of a gas that's shooting into a gas. It won't maintain its structure over long distance. It almost instantly starts to spread out because there's no leverage. There's nothing focusing it. And I think that's the right word. There's nothing focusing it. And you see that's where water comes into play, partly as a result of the highly highly elastic way in which its surface tension is revealed under conditions of flow. And that, I know that sounds like a whole mouthful of words I'm putting together there, but that's really, those are the words. Um, so that means we need to understand what is elasticity. And why is, why do I say water is highly elastic? And why do I say that it's uh, that it, and that elasticity becomes especially important under conditions of flow. Why? Well, you know, why does flow matter? What does flow do to water to change its qualities such that it um, has takes on different qualities that aren't um, obvious? And that is really what happens too. By the way, is that flow the characteristics of flow cause changes in the H2O to essentially ramp up its surface tension in a way that doesn't really occur in any other part of nature and could only occur on wind shear boundaries. It actually does produce a form of H2O that becomes energized by way of spinning. So the molecules of H2O either in chains or even individually start spinning in some way I won't go into the detail of what happens to make them spin. I will say this, though. It has to do with long, flat boundary layers that form under calm conditions and a concept called wind shear, something that's generally associated with vortices. Because of this, though, there actually is a substance in the atmosphere that provides genuine structure, and it can actually form into tubes. Traveling over long distances through that tube and accelerating based on the difference in the um, in the pressure from one end of the tube to the next to thereby start to effectuate the actual atmosphere we actually see. It has to do with the physics of H2O and 
And the quality that, that emerges is just simply structural capabilities. That's all it is. It's in a plasma form, and it's a very fast-moving form that, that's actually spinning to form the sheath of vortices. So, by the way, when you see a tornado, that, that sheath isn't just spinning air. And it isn't, it isn't the air that's moving up quickly up through the center of the tornado either. It isn't the air moving through the tube. It's the actual composition of the tube, and that is a type of plasma. It is a plasma uh, mostly of, of water molecules, and again, they're spinning very rapidly. The result of a phenomenon that can only happen on wind shear boundaries because it requires flow as part of its own existence, uh, that, that phenomena being this type of plasma that forms as a result of a quality of water, surface tension. Surface tension is a property that we know reveals itself on the, on the surface of liquid water. And what's happening in the atmosphere is a situation where that surface tension is actually finding a stable existence through spinning. If not for the incredible elasticity of the hydrogen bonds that exist between water molecules, none of this would be remotely possible, but it is very possible because of that. It is because H2O does have this elasticity. That's the key. And that's the reason that, that H2O is able to effectuate these capabilities and do things, such things as be the, the sheath of vortices and such, and, and also to be involved in life. And it has to do with that elastic bond. It has everything to do with that. The fact that that bond actually gets stronger with distance is a big deal. That's what elasticity is. You pull a rubber band apart, and it gets stronger. It's trying to pull back together. Hydrogen is really the only thing that does this, and that's why hydrogen is so important to um, all processes that are elastic, including life itself.